Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam Xavier McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm chopping it up with Dr. Peter Cole, a professor of history at Western Illinois University in Macomb, Illinois, about the second edition of Ben Fletcher, The Life and Writings of a Black Wobbly, published in 2021 by PM Press. In our conversation, we discuss the incredible Philadelphia and Delaware Valley life of Ben Fletcher, why Peter decided the time was right for his second edition, and at the end, we even discuss one of my favorite sports, rugby. Enjoy the conversation, family. Dr. Peter Cole, how you doing today? I am so good. Thank you very much. Good, good. Well, I'm super duper glad that you... And I had the opportunity to finally come together, get everything going, and and finally get this interview done. And, and like I told you offline, sometimes the best interviews are ones that take sometimes the longest to like bring timelines together. And so I definitely feel like that is how we are today on this Saturday, November 6th. And I'm looking at mine because I know you're central. At eleven thirty-four a.m. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, happy to be here at ten thirty-four here in Chicago. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. So, uh, before we dig deep into your book, an amazing, amazing book, and a great profile on, on an incredible person that I'm going to be honest, I didn't know about before. You know, you reached out, so you know, you, you got one convert here. Um, so, before we dig deep into the book, can you describe? your introduction to the life and activism of Ben Fletcher for the listening audience? Well, of course. I mean, like you and all, all the listeners, I had never heard of Ben Fletcher um, before I stumbled across him when I was in graduate school. I mean, no one has heard of Ben Fletcher, really. Um, I mean, back in my undergraduate days, I was interested in African-American history and also labor history. Um, I took several courses in college from the legendary Eric Foner, um, who was not my mentor by any means, but without him even really knowing me, um, turned me onto a path, um, uh, having assigned me a classic of labor history called Chance Democratic by Sean Wilentz, uh, his first and only work of labor history about antebellum New York City. Um, but then I was in grad school um, and uh, taking coursework and was taking a course on the U.S. history in the interwar era between World War I and World War II um, uh, with the woman who became my grad, uh, dissertation advisor, Dorothy Brown, at Georgetown. Um, and I was reading a book. It was a book by a man named Melvin Dubofsky, who's now a retired labor historian from Binghamton in New York. And uh, that book is called We Shall Be All. It's a sort of a survey of the industrial workers of the world or the IWW and their members are nicknamed Wobblies. Um, and so I was reading this book. It's a long book. I don't know, 400 and something pages. And there was like 
a few sentences in on one page of the book, and it mentioned Ben Fletcher as the only African American who was among the IWW leadership that was arrested and put on mass trial in 1918 during World War One. And I was like, who the hell is Ben Fletcher? Um, there was a few other small, small parts of Dubofsky's classic survey um, about the union that Fletcher was a part of, um, which was called Local Eight. Um, and, uh, you know, I was like many people in grad school, had an idea of my interests, but not a specific idea for a dissertation topic. And lots of early grad students put a lot of pressure on themselves because there's a need to figure that out. Um, and at that time, in the early 90s, I started grad school in 1991, um, racial capitalism was not a widely known concept, even though the mm. idea already existed. Um, even though Cedric Robinson had already been introduced to a group of South Africans in the 70s when he was living in England and met some South African exiles and basically it was South Africans trying to figure out what does apartheid mean um, in a economic, in a political economic way and political economy. And it was South Africans who came up with this idea of racial capitalism that then Robinson basically popularized in, in the North Atlantic, right? Like, um, but I didn't know what that was, right? Like, um, but I very much understood already as a 20 something person that there was a lot of people who didn't have much money and a few who did. Um, and that unions were perhaps the single most effective way to bring some of that money from the few to the many, right? Like uh, short of revolution. Um, and so, and I already, thanks to some of my professors in college, came to appreciate the centrality of race in American history. I still call it, like many of us do, the paradox, right? Um, in a country mm -hmm. committed to equality rhetorically, yet has from its inception practiced inequality. So, um, widely and blatantly, right? Like, um, and so I, like many people, even though I didn't have literally the language, right? I was interested in Ben Fletcher, right? Um, because I was interested in the union that he led, uh, a multiracial, multiethnic union in 19 teens, Philadelphia, um, because that was the sort of thing that sort of drew my interest because like many, I was looking to the past to try to sort of understand the present. And for me also sort of make a better future. Right, like, uh, and so I was really interested in interracial unionism, and Ben Fletcher and Local Eight were the single most effective interracial union of their generation, and and perhaps even up until that time in U.S. history. Um, and so uh, my introduction was uh, in grad school. I read a short excerpt, and then I did like any good grad student might do. I started to read the footnotes and see there literally is nothing written about this guy. Uh, there was actually a few very short articles written about him in the union he was a leader of. Um, but um, I came to believe that uh, this history deserved much more attention. Um, and well, you know, fast forward nearly 30 years and I'm still, <laughs> I'm still blown <laughs> away by them and, and continue to sort of actually um, talk and write and investigate them further, but um, it goes back to the early 90s in a graduate history course, um, a, a reading seminar that um, fortunately um, I was paying attention to. Right. Fortunately is right, because Lord knows, uh, you know, it happens uh, where sometimes, you know, you're not, you know, I'm not going to say this is necessarily audit you know, autobiographical because uh, I'm, I'm still in graduate school, but, you know, every now and again, you're not always... Uh, the most focused in the class. So I'm glad that you were 
in, in this particular time. And so as I look at your uh, book right now, Revise and Expanded Second Edition. So I'm looking at it and I see a forward by Robin D.G. Kelly, and obviously a noted historian par excellence, right? And, and scholar, thinker, activist, the whole bit. And so can you please talk about what it means to you to receive a forward by Kelly on the, on your on your uh, revised and expanded second edition? Well, of course, um, you know, uh, let me sort of talk a little about um, the forward, and then maybe we could talk about the sort of the second edition in, in a sort of general. Um, but like with many people, I deeply respect the writings and, for that matter, the words and the speeches of Robin Kelly. Um, I was in grad school when Hammer and Ho uh, had just been released, and um, that's sort of like the par excellence, right, of uh, sort of African-American labor history. Um, and, you know, like many, I sort of uh, read met, met many of his works. I had met him uh, a few times um, and learned uh, along the way, actually, that um, when he was in grad school, he was interested in um, Ben Fletcher and IWW Local 8, um, uh, which um, is sort of perfect, right? Um, so, you know, when, 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 when I was planning the second edition and I was soliciting people I knew to write endorsements for the book, right, blurbs, right, um, I contacted him. Um, I knew him, but not well. Um, and I um, said, hey, would you, I know you're busy, maybe you want to write a blurb. Uh, and he came back and said, actually, how about I write a forward, right? Like, how might, instead of giving me 50 words, I give you 3,000 words, right? And I said, that sounds great. Um, and so <laughs> this was actually during the pandemic, right? Um, earlier in the pandemic, I should say. Um, and so I was thrilled. Um, then when he sent it to me in, I guess, spring of 2020, then I was even more thrilled, right? Because it's really amazing. Um, he does a wonderful job of it. In some ways, I'm ashamed to admit it better than I do at explaining um, why Ben Fletcher matters um, and why he's so interesting. Um, I then was able to, uh, well, the publisher, PM Press, sort of was able to get um, uh, Descent Magazine to sort of publish his essay. So I condensed it because they wanted it shorter um, and published that in advance in December 2020. Um, and it's the forward's great, right? Um, uh, the Descent magazine version, would one would not have to own my book in order to sort of read his short essay that's essentially about the book and stands alone. Um, so it was an honor, right, uh, to sort of have him do that. I appreciate that it sort of amplifies um, Ben Fletcher's um, history and, and, and my book about him, no question about it. Um, yeah, I came to learn that uh, Robin and I share many other things in common. He was active in the anti-apartheid movement in Southern California um, in the early 80s. Um, and I um, actually have written extensively about the solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement, you know, from California, um, uh, mostly the San Francisco Bay Area. And so um, over the course of that, it was, of course, uh, nice to sort of learn more about him and whatnot. And um, and his long section in the forward about the movie Reds also is really mm -hmm. thoughtful. Um, and uh, yeah, um, also we're thinking about deeply the sort of the unbearable whiteness of, of, of the movie Reds 
um, is uh, interesting in retrospect for those of us who like our film history and, and are interested in watching about a film about the Russian Revolution, but then the connection to the American left right, during and after World War One. No, that's that's incredible. And, and you know, I know I, I can only imagine like how giddy I would be, you know, to, to receive something from 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 Kelly. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's also a great story to kind of think about the the connections and and also um, why it's important to reach out to people, because, you know, all they can do is say no. And in this case, Kelly said yes. So uh, and we're all blessed because of it. Um, and so you talked about the forward a bit. And so to, I guess, take a step back a little bit. Um, I think I got a, got a little ahead of myself here. I'm so excited for this interview. Um, so why did you ultimately think releasing a second edition of Ben Fletcher, A Life in Times of a, ba- of a Black Wobbly was right for you to do right now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, in some ways, the answer, the reason is very simple. A publisher um, approached me and asked if I would do a second edition. And the answer is simple. It's yes. Right. Um, <laughs> like um, the uh, rarely do books, books that are scholarly or historical, even though PM Press is not an academic publisher per se. Right. Like, um get republished, right? Like, I mean, that's just a, there's a small market. Uh, it's a capitalist world and even sort of awesome book publishers need to make money, right? Like, um, but, uh, you know, um, I happened to meet the publisher of PM Press um, when I was t- um, doing a book talks in the Bay Area where PM is based and the head of PM, the founder is a guy named Ramsey Kanan. Um, Ramsey said, hey, um, you know, I love this book. What do you think about second edition? I said, yes. But the second reason um, is because I knew a lot more in 2019 when I had that conversation than I did um, in 2006 when I finished up the first edition of the book, which was published by Charles H. Kerr Press, which is an amazing publisher based in Chicago, goes back to the 1880s, was the original publisher of Karl Marx in English in the U.S., um, oh, was shit. the original publisher of um, the autobiography of Mother Jones, um, uh, published a lot of um, other books really on sort of um, socialism and capitalism, but also surrealism. Kelly, actually Robin Kelly writes, um, has written for and um, is connected to Charles Kerr as is Dave Rodiger actually was one of Mm -hmm. the people who helped restart it really in the seventies and eighties. I was honored to sort of publish with them. Um, But, uh, you know, PM press allowed me to do more. Right. And so that's why we put it's not just a second edition. It's understandable. Literally, the second edition is twice as long as the first edition. Um, And that's because in the intervening 12 or 13 years, I had learned a lot more about Ben Fletcher. Rarely do you get a chance to sort of redo. Right. Um, But in this case, I I, I did. And that was so fortunate. Right. Um, After my first edition of the book came out, some people it's it's a very small book and a small publisher found me which is not uncommon, right? Like people who find your work, reach out to an author. Um, some of those people helped me in tremendous ways. One of them was an old white man named Anatole Dolgoff. He's still alive. Um, Anatole is now in his 80s. Anatole, when he was in his first decade of life in the 1940s, knew Ben Fletcher because his father was a very close friend. His father and mother were close friends and neighbors of Ben Fletcher, right? And so Thanks to the first edition, I got to know, I have a personal connection to um, the uh, 
Fletcher. I also actually know one other woman, although I lost touch with her. I think she's passed away, who also was a child because her father was also a co-worker and um, so wobbly of Fletcher's. Um, but, you know, Fletcher died in 1949. Um, and so it was mm-hmm. well before I was born. Um, and so the opportunity to talk with someone about Ben Fletcher and that milieu in his later years, because he lived in Brooklyn um, in the 30s and 40s, moved to Phil- from Philadelphia around 1930, right? It was amazing, right? Like, um, uh, so that's another reason. A third really important reason, maybe the most important reason um, why the second edition seemed right um, is that the world and the United States are different in 2021 than they were in 2007. Um, mm-hmm. 14 years is a long time. It's not really a long time, but it is a long time. But basically 2007, you know, 2006, like that's the second term of George W. Bush, right? It's before yeah. the Great Recession. Um, most Americans still wildly supported the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and the broader sort of unregulated capitalism and empire building of the Bush-Cheney, Rumsfeld, Rice era, right? Um, There was a housing boom, which even though it was clear it was unsustainable, right? The economy was roaring. It was a bubble, right? It collapsed actually in 2007. Um, But fast forward, right, to 2021, there's many more people who are interested in a socialist revolutionary black man like Ben Fletcher, um, who helped lead a multiracial militant union like Local 8, um, uh, from maybe the baddest union in the world, the IWW, right? Like in mm. 2021. Um, and now actually you can, I won't say you're walking down the street and you hear someone go, oh, I can't believe racial capitalism, but that term actually has weight in ways that it didn't have 15 years ago. Um, and among millennials and Gen Zers, um, there's a lot more people interested in radical politics and anti-racism and socialism and pan-Africanism. Um, there's a lot more people in the U.S. and around the world angry about the status quo. Um, and, well, even though I consider myself a happy person, I'm angry about the world I live in um, because mm-hmm. it's so unfair for so many people. right? Like, uh, and I'm glad to say that there's a lot more people who are angry, too, in 2021. Sadly, some of those people are angry because they have to wear a mask in public. right? Like, uh, but a lot of people are also angry um, because racism persists because economic inequality is so vast, because the planet is burning, right? Like, uh, and so 2021 is a better time to release a book about a revolutionary socialist union leader than 2007 was. <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least. And, you know, as someone who I was um, in 2007, I was, uh, I was 15. And so thinking about like, you know, I was born in 92 and, and I always like whenever I talk to my students about change in and in, in not like some Obamian level of like kind of change, but like literal like change over time. Um, born in 92, I leave the country for the first time in June of 2001. Yet I don't receive my first passport until 2012. And that's because when I went out of the country, I went to the Bahamas, where you didn't need, as as a U.S. citizen, your uh, you didn't need a passport. September 11th changed that. And so, you know, I told students in terms of, like, watching television shows and, like, those airport scenes, especially rom-coms, 
you know, baby, no, baby, no, you know, don't go, you know, and they're not, there's no TSA. There's the gate and the plane that you see. And so a lot has changed since, you know, obviously 2001, but obviously 2007 and the proliferation of um, even the, even just like thinking about a prison abolition, right? Even that, even just a couple of years ago, right? And we see what happens with the uprisings. And so, um, I, I'll say that your book um, definitely was one that helped me to kind of think about the importance of labor activism, and also literally how labor it reminds me that labor activism is how we get a five day work week, right? Or even just like the segment of like our concept of time and weeks. And how we can even strategize in a week is literally based on labor activism. If if, if I'm reading um, the the history correctly, um, and correspondingly to Ben Fletcher, thinking about the the his movement, like like the literal his literal movements, and so um, I, I definitely think our li- uh, the listening audience is really gonna enjoy reading this book and also seeing. <clears throat> the the different ways that uh your book is constructed which is very different than most of the books i think every book that i've actually had um here and we'll get to that a little later but um one of the things that i also think about too especially with this kind of different kind of project are challenges that may have occurred as a result so with this second edition um coming out can you describe um, some of maybe your the biggest challenges you encountered in bring, bringing not only this edition, but trying to even reflect on the the 2000, the original uh, version um, of the book. Um, can you talk about some of the biggest challenges um, and what you've learned over the course of, of this uh, period, too, if you can? Well, of course. I mean, so for historians or anyone who's interested in the past, professional or not, right, like, Investigating the lives of non-elite people is hard. Um, They're simply less well-known and therefore less documented. They also probably had less time to sort of document their lives, um, meaning writing a diary, um, composing letters and mailing them to other people, collecting those things. Um, All these challenges are amplified by those who are poorer as well as those who are, generally speaking, not white. Um, And so investigating the lives of non-elite black people, right? Um, Fletcher didn't keep a diary to our knowledge, to my knowledge. He didn't um, preserve his letters. As far as I know, nothing was saved from his life. Um, for that matter, actually, um, the uh, um, IWW was so hated because it was a revolutionary union, um, so hated by the U.S. government that um, when the offices of the IWW in dozens of cities around the country were raided in 1917, um, they confiscated almost everything the IWW owned, including all of its records, and, and, and those disappeared, presumed to be destroyed sometime in the 20s. Right? Like, um, ironically, however, um, uh, some of that material was saved in various different governmental papers, like the Department of Labor, the Department of Justice, the Department of Naval Intelligence, the Department of... Uh, uh, Justice, which also had a sort of a, a branch called the Pardon Attorney's Office. Um, one of the best sources of information about Ben Fletcher is, in fact, um, the federal investigations, plural, into his and the lives of other radicals and leaders in the IWW. 
right? Like, um, and so for instance, Fletcher was being spied on, right? Like in, the, in 1917, um, agents from the Department of uh, Justice's Bureau of Investigation were spying on him, right? Like, uh, and hundreds of other radicals in the IWW, right? And so um, then when, of course, Fletcher was arrested and imprisoned um, in Leavenworth, then his correspondence was opened, right, uh, and transcribed, right, um, and documented in various ways. This is not unique to Ben Fletcher, right? This is the case for others who were, I would call them political prisoners, right? Um, so the most obvious challenge is um, have a lack of information, right? Like, um, and uh, fortunately, uh, through a variety of resources and time, that could be overcome, but uh, in this case, but for a lot of people, it's, it's not, right? Um, a related challenge, um, but separate, is, is doing biography, right? Like, um, uh, it's, it's a fascinating, we all relate to people. We don't relate to unions or organizations because I'm not a union or organization, right? Like, uh, so we, I relate to people, right? So biography is, for great many reasons, sort of in a popular genre, right? Like, um, uh, both in film as well as in mm-hmm. sort of writing, Right, like um, but how do you do a biography? You don't personally know that individual, um, and don't know anyone who does, um, and they don't leave any personal records, right? Like, uh, <laughs> and so meaning mm-hmm. my book, my book is incomplete, right? I don't know what his favorite food was, I don't know what his hobbies were, I don't know whose favorite musician was, um, I only know a little about his family, right? Like, did he like the Philadelphia Giants, which was the Negro League team, in uh, when he was growing up? When he was a teenager, the Giants actually um, were the best team in Negro baseball, right? Um, they were Hall mm-hmm. of Famers, future Hall of Famers. They dominated, right? In 1905, they were they went 134 and 22, right? Like, um, uh, you know, did he like the Giants? Maybe, right? I simply can't answer the question, right? Like, uh, and so that's uh, a failing, right? Or, or sort of a limitation, right? Like, um, that is what it is. I mean, I'm proud of the book. Um, but one of the reasons I actually organized it the way I did, and I know we can talk about that later, is because I couldn't write a 200-page book about Ben Fletcher because my knowledge of Ben Fletcher is circumscribed by the, the time uh, he lived in, um, by the fact that he was a working-class person, right, uh, that, um, I, uh, that he lived before I lived, right? Um, biography is challenging in a lot of ways. Um, I respect mm-hmm. people who do biographies. Um, uh, many are actually um, incomplete in, in a lot of ways too, right? Like, I mean, uh, right. do, they, do they tell the interior lives, right? Like, um, I don't pretend to. I actually organize my books so that it's sort of his public-facing life is what we get. Uh, but it's sort of frustrating because you want to know more. And believe me, I want to know more, even though I've spent many years thinking about and studying his life there's actually just large parts that remain and probably will remain unless we have get those time machines, right? Like, uh, so that we can't, <laughs> we can't know what, what he was thinking or doing in, in all sorts of ways. Um, so that's a major limitation, right? Uh, that's a challenge, right. Um, of writing this sort of book. Yeah. And one of the greatest parts about your book is that readers get to understand how fantastic an organizer Fletcher actually was, right? Because he he was he was definitely tapped by so many um, important folks of the day, and and also you show that he was one of the best activists, like like most most important activists 
but more so unheralded of the uh, first half of the literally the first half of the 20th century, looking at the time frame of his death. So so through your research, can you tell us about what qualities made Ben Fletcher such an adept organizer and activist? Yeah, so Fletcher, I'd say first and foremost, why is he sort of a successful organizer um, and activist? Um, I generally use the word organizer, although they're both, and I think they mean largely similar things. Um, uh, organizer is trying to bring people together, right, into an organization, right, I prefer. Um, but so he's an amazing speaker, right? Like uh, that really is important for someone who is an organizer or an activist for that matter. Um, almost the very first report about him in the public domain, right? Like in an IWW um, newspaper was about him um, giving a talk, right? And that he was considered to be a really good speaker in 1912 before he even organized Local 8, right? Um, he was a soapbox speaker, right? And uh, that term is sort of lost to history. But um, I always say that, well, you know, this is before radio, which is the first form of mass live communication, right? Like, uh, and so if you wanted to organize people, working class people, you went to the streets because that's where people lived. They lived out on the streets. Um, outside of wintertime, especially, you'd go outside and just hang out, right? Um, but of course, you were walking everywhere, um, although you could take a streetcar. And so I surmise, although I could be wrong, even that Fletcher learned about the IWW, by simply walking down the street of his neighborhood and seeing an IWW organizer standing on a box, nicknamed the soapbox, on a street corner, um, a busy street corner where people would congregate and speak, right? Like, um, and soapboxers would go on for hours, right? Like, um, not for five or 10 minutes, right? Like, and this was common, right? So this would have been political organizations, radical groups, but even most famously, perhaps the Salvation Army, right? Like, uh, um, and so he was a speaker, right? Like, uh, um, there are so many comments about him over the course of decades of, of people saying, God, he's really brilliant, right? Um, uh, notably, he was organizing in a city with a large black population, the, large, the largest black population outside of the South um, at that time. But most black men and women were denied jobs in the booming industries of the city, um, textiles and metal making in particular. Um, simply due to racism. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois' first book is about Philadelphia. It's called The Philadelphia Negro. It came out in 1899. And he sort of basically puts that as the center of the story that, that Black folks, especially in the Seventh Ward, what was called the Seventh Ward then, which is basically South Central Philadelphia, right? Um, now, not a very Black place then um, is or was. Um, but, uh, you know, employers hired immigrants over Black people in short, right? And so the norm in America um, uh, it was uh, sort of um, that, right? And so Fletcher's workers that he would be organizing because he was an IWW organizer actually weren't originally African-Americans. And so that in a way is a sort of a second important point. Fletcher was really a great organizer because he actually learned by first organizing European-Americans and European immigrants, right? Um, that becomes very important because actually the union that he helps form on the waterfront is uh, at its birth, maybe two-thirds non-Black, Right. Um, and so he needed to be able to communicate, not just to people that are, quote unquote, like him, um, African-American working class people. But he also really needed to be able to communicate with Poles, um, not that he knew Polish, but like European immigrants, uh, but also sort of uh, white Americans, Irish Americans and the like. Right. And so he was uh, a great organizer because he demonstrated 
based on what happened, right? Uh, that he was able to organize in multi-ethnic, multiracial places of work, um, like the Philadelphia Waterfront. The Philadelphia Waterfront was exceptional in that um, employers would hire black men, unlike most other employers. Um, basically, black men and women were hired for day jobs, um, generally manual labor, right? Um, and like I said, excluded from a lot of other types of work. A third reason that he's a really great organizer, I believe, related to his speaking abilities is that he's really funny. Um, again, multiple people comment about his humor. Um, humor is just such a great way to disarm people and charm them, right? Uh, and he, but also many members of the IWW were sort of legendary also for their gallows humor, um, a sort of a cynical brand of humor, right? Sort of acknowledging the weight of the world, acknowledging unfairness, inequality, racism. But, you know, you can do a lot of things with that. And one thing you can do is complain. Another is you can make jokes about it. And probably that second way is a sort of a healthier way, but also maybe a more effective way at sort of raising these issues with other people. Um, I think another thing about Fletcher is that I say he was a brilliant organizer. He eschewed the, the limelight, right? There's actually, he doesn't put himself at the center, right? Um, now, in a way that's very sort of Ubuntu, right? Like Southern African idea of like, all of us are together. Like there's not me, there's us, right? Um, it's also very wobbly, right? Um, the Wobblies actually generated many dynamic individuals and leaders and speakers and songwriters. And, um, but they weren't about that, right? They actually had these very strict democratic rules to prevent authoritarianism within the organization, they had annual elections, <laughs> you know, and so they, they forced you to sort of basically um, out of the leadership on a periodic basis. Fletcher wasn't always the president of Vocal 8. He wasn't allowed to be, right? Like uh, that way you build more leaders, right? Um, so you don't create any sort of cults of personality the way that um, many dynamic institutions and movements do, right? Like, um, for example, right? Um, I'd also say that he was a true believer, right? And so for a good organizer, you have to, what do you believe in, right? To me, that's really important. I don't think he would have been, I mean, he could have been a good organizer for other institutions, um, but he believed in the causes that he um, championed. Yes, racial equality. I mean, what black person doesn't believe in racial equality? Um, but, you know, he was a socialist first. He would say he was a socialist first. Right. Um, uh, and so which means that he sort of saw that in addition to the unfairness in terms of the political system, he also saw the inherent unfairness of the economic system that he was born into. Right. Um, and he also was a wobbly and wobbly as the industrial workers world was sort of anarchist in their ideology. They weren't anarchists per se, although some anarchists were members of. But what that meant in practical terms is that they didn't engage in any electoral politics. They didn't form a political organization. They formed a union because IWW people believed that the best way to achieve socialism was through um, revolutionary power on the job, which is where people had the most power. Ordinary people, in other words, according to this line of thinking, is that your straightest strength is to stop work, to sort of basically hit people or hit the bosses where they're at greatest um, risk, which is money. Right. Um, many people have said that if politics really mattered, we wouldn't have the right to vote. Right. Like because uh, <laughs> then we mm -hmm. would maybe change things. Right. And so I'm not I actually do vote. I'm not saying don't vote. But the IWW didn't engage in electoral politics um, and didn't have didn't envision itself as a political party. Right. Um, of course, for African-Americans in the early 20th century, why would they believe in the electoral system when 
the 90% of African Americans were denied the right to vote. Um, and so um, white Americans might be under the mythic idea, right, that elections matter, but black people wouldn't have been at that time, right, um, because they simply were excluded from uh, the electoral system, even outside of the South, right, like uh, where black men could vote, maybe, uh, but the Republican Party had long given up on uh, championing uh, racial equality, right? This is the nadir, right? As Rayford Logan famously described um, African America in post-abolition uh, times, right? And so those are a number of reasons why I think Fletcher was a really impressive organizer. And um, yeah, that's sort of based on now, of course, the humor thing. We don't have any recordings of this person, sadly, but I'll just tell you one joke, right? That's sort of one of his well-known ones. So like he was on trial in Chicago in 1918 on federal trial along with nearly 100 of his fellow workers in the IWW. The charges against them were espionage and sedition, which is to say that they were um, traitors, right? Like uh, Because they were opposed to the U.S. during its war against Germany. Now, the evidence was basically... They wrote things down in their newspapers that criticized war because war was imperialist and war basically would result in working class people killing other working class people where the true war was the class war. That was the, um, the language that they would have used. That, those words were used against them, right? Um, even though a lot of those words were actually written before the U.S. Declaration of War in 1917, right? Um, and there was no direct evidence used against Fletcher, right? Um, but nevertheless, um, after this four-month trial, the longest trial in U.S. history up until that point, right? Um, a widely covered trial nationwide, right? Um, the jury came back in under an hour where all nearly 100 people were guilty on all five counts, right? And they wouldn't have had time to even basically read everyone's name off before they came back guilty on all charges, right? And so Fletcher turned to his good friend and fellow wobbly, better known man named Big Bill Haywood, who was a leader in the IWW. And Fletcher said to Haywood, he said, well, the judge isn't using very proper grammar uh, these days. And... Um, Haywood says to Fletcher, why is that, Ben? And Fletcher says, well, because his sentences are much too long, right? Fletcher received 10 years in federal prison. Most of uh, his fellow workers on trial received 10 to 20 years in prison. Um, the crime, again, was basically orally criticizing the war, right? Um, mm. And so, you know, um, Fletcher's humor was widely reported. It was actually that story was repeated many times in various different publications in the late teens and and in the 20s, right? Like it's, uh, but it's, it gives us a sense, right? So it's a little sarcasm, right? Um, it's uh, sort of a pun. Um, it's uh, cynical, right? Like, um, uh, but uh, I get the sense that that was very much in Fletcher's um, way of being. And it's really cool just kind of taking these important stories where like, you know, like you said, you don't have like a vast archive of you know his life and his you know inner workings but to kind of glean off of that and maybe one of the more popular elements of his life that were out there was was through the trial um and it also makes me think about um just a question of 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 also getting back to to the why so like for such a well accomplished organizer and, and union activist um why is Ben Fletcher's role in early 20th century activism in just maybe African-American history, U.S. history circles still so obscure today? Yeah, well, like, um, 
I do wonder about that. As historians, we know it's impossible to understand why something doesn't happen, right? Like, uh, although I've got a plenty of ideas, right? Like, I mean, I think first and foremost is repression, um, government repression. Those of us who are interested in African-American history or the present um, can appreciate the central role that government and non-governmental repression can play in sort of literally wiping out, but even disappearing, right? Um, subjects or individuals who are unwelcome by the majority, right? Um, and so, the IWW, more broadly, isn't simply isn't known as well as I think it should be. Um, it's still around, actually, the Industrial Workers of the World. But like in 1905, when it was founded into the mid-20s, it was the most important revolutionary organization in the United States. There was hundreds of thousands of um, people in this union across the country, and they were very powerful and very well known, and they're simply not known. So Fletcher is a part of that. Um, I think the way that we as in historians, like our profession, especially um, before the 70s, right? Like uh, that the sort of school of history, the consensus school of history that essentially denied radicalism, right? Like uh, that everyone is sort of gets along and that we're all middle class. Of course, again, African-Americans and African-American historians can appreciate the lie in that. But, but, but that's a powerful um, uh, sort of tool um, I'd say that more broadly, the IWW and, and, and sadly, labor history for some people doesn't fit easily into African-American history. Um, that shouldn't be the way it is. I mean, African-American history, African-Americans are working class people, right? Like uh, mostly, right? Like, um, and historically, right? Like, um, but, you know, um, I think for historians of the African-American experience, who are interested in and were at least appreciative of the role of the left, um, they sort of jumped to the 30s, the 1930s, and the Communist Party era. And um, because the Communist Party did elevate the sort of struggle for black equality and sort of centered it in the 30s and 1940s especially, right? Like, um, and that in earlier times, most unions were racist, either excluded black people period, or segregated them. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we're underrepresented. So black people now are actually overrepresented in unions. Maybe 20% of Americans who are in unions are African descent. Um, but it was more like 3%, say, in the early 20th century, even though overwhelmingly black people were working class. That's because of the racism that was embedded into most unions um, and most union members. Um, but that was not the case in the IWW. Um, the IWW was anti-racist from its birth in 1905, and really Local 8 is the single best example of anti-racism in action in the IWW, right? Um, when Local 8 is a third African-American and a third Irish and Irish-American and a third European immigrants when it's founded in 1913. That's actually sort of amazing. Um, there are no other unions quite like that, right? Uh, and so the exceptionality sometimes allows for one to sort of basically discount it. Um, you know, and the last point I'd make, although we could talk about this whole subject for another hour, right? Um, it's well worth noting that um, historical amnesia of racism, of racial violence, as well as black radicals simply is, right? I mean, uh, sort of the uh, battle over critical race theory, even though 99% of opponents of CRT couldn't explain what it is, right? What they're really saying is they don't want to be talking about racism and the history of racism, right? Like, um, and I'll just give you one other example, right? So I'm talking to you from Chicago, um, and I'm the founder and co-director of something called the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. Um, in 1919, a black boy was murdered by a white man 
for the crime of swimming while black. He was swimming in Lake Michigan and crossed an invisible line in the water. And a white man on the beach threw rocks at this child and killed him. And then a white police officer refused to arrest the white killer. And then that night, gangs of white men and boys attacked the predominantly black neighborhood nicknamed the Black Belt, now called Bronzeville in Chicago on the south side. No one knows that, right? Like 38 people were killed, 537 were injured. It's the worst incident of racial violence in Chicago history. It is a major reason that Chicago became segregated by neighborhood. And that in 2021, Chicago is known still for being a very segregated city. But no one knows how, why, or when, right? And so why don't people know about Ben Fletcher? Well, why don't people know about the Chicago race riot of 1919 in Chicago, right? Like, um, uh, so in some ways, it's not a unique to Fletcher or the IWW. It's, it's sort of um, willful amnesia, right, on the part of the white majority, um, even though now I'd say actually there's many more folks like me, white people, who are willing to sort of engage in this conversation and, and, and center this to the story that we tell, right? Like, um, but uh, I am obviously um, have devoted a lot of my uh, time and effort to trying to uplift Fletcher and the union that he helped lead um, because I think it has much to say for our time as well as that it was important historically, right? Um, but it is sad, no doubt, <laughs> that so much of what, mm-hmm. we, uh, what has happened is simply unknown, right? Like uh, the Cokeville talked about the sort of the um, lack of historical appreciation in the 1830s when he visited the United States, right, from France. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's actually not every culture is as lacking in the appreciation of history, but American history and culture is, right? Um, and so that's good or bad, I suppose it depends. I think bad. Um, but it's it's sort of part of an even larger currents in our, our culture, right, to sort of um, destroy things instead of renovate them, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. to, to, to build things that actually don't last instead of building things that do, right? Um, you know, uh, there's all sorts of examples of how we are a very sort of center or sort of presentist, right? Um, uh, you know, and, um, all one has to do is spend time in other parts of the world where there's a deeper appreciation for history to know that that's not the way all humans are. Um, but American culture is that way. And it, it is something that we have to grapple with. Most definitely. And um, one of the parts that, you know, I've been doing this uh, interview thing for a little while now, but I'm, you know, I'm thankful that I'm still finding ways to try to do things a little different and add to the repertoire a bit. And one of those things I'm starting to do more so is I love hearing authors actually read sections of their book to the listening audience, because, you know, as my advisor tells me, whenever you know, whenever she puts something out, she has to make sure that she reads it aloud, right? Because I think that there is something to be said for the voice of the writer being able to to, to also be heard. And uh, on the New Books in African American Studies uh, podcast channel, you know, we, we got we got a pretty big voice at this point. So, uh, uh, Peter, can you please? Uh, uh, read a few sections of, of your book that I that think that really speak to the essence of what you attempted to intellectually bring to bear um, from from this amazing book. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. So um, it's also a good example. The, the the sort of the short piece I'll read is this wasn't in the 2007 the first edition because I didn't know it existed, right? Um, but thanks to further research, um, 
you know, there's twice as much information literally in this book. Like I said, it's twice as long because um, the majority of the book are documents. Everything I say that's written by or about him or nearly everything. Um, I know it's not everything, but, um, you know, and so it's longer because I know more now. But one of the, the most amazing new document in the second edition compared to the first is an interview that Fletcher did in 1931 for the Amsterdam News. The Amsterdam News, of course, was the black, sort of best-known black newspaper in New York City, Amsterdam Avenue being a street that runs north-south through Harlem and south of Harlem, too. Right? And so in the Amsterdam News in 1931, Fletcher did this interview, and it's amazing. The whole interview is in my book, of course, um, as well as a cool photograph of him. But I'll read you a portion and this is in his voice, right? And so the, the, the article is actually a combination of the art, authors, the interviewer, and the subject. But this part is from Fletcher's. I was preparing the longshoremen of Baltimore for a strike in 1917 for higher wages, shorter hours, and better working conditions. When I received instructions from headquarters to proceed to Norfolk, where the dock workers were becoming restless and asking that an organizer be sent them, Fletcher began. I found the men responsive and eager for a union, but I had not been in town long before word was circulated that I represented a dangerous element set on the destruction of property and the overthrow of the government. Then I began receiving messages of a threatening character. I would be lynched if I spread the doctrine around Norfolk. I was told one night friends, fearing that my life was in danger, smuggled me aboard a northbound ship to Boston. By the time the government spurred on by the lumber and copper interests of the West had set about a deliberate plan to eradicate the IWW, which was growing rapidly in numbers, gaining control of certain important industries and threatening the supremacy of the American Federation of Labor, which the government, government consistently favored throughout the war period. It was while I was working in Boston that I received a tip that I was in line for indictment by a federal grand jury. Accepting this tip as authentic, I returned to my home in Philadelphia, where I preferred to be placed under arrest. The next week, I read in the paper that indictments had been returned against 166 of us and that we were to be arrested on site. Um, he would go on to actually live in Philadelphia for several more months with his wife and stepchild um, before the government found him, although he was hiding in plain sight in his home city. Um, and uh, he was living for, since I know you now are a Philadelphian, um, right, mm -hmm. in, in, in sort of the Grays Ferry area. So on the western part of the old city, um, yep. near, near the Schuylkill River and where there was, um, used to be a lot of railroad lines with the Pennsylvania Railroad, right? Um, and he was working at that time for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Um, those who know the board game Monopoly, you know, the Pennsylvania Railroad, because um, it was actually the largest railroad corporation in America in that era. Um, and so um, Fletcher, ah. Fletcher was um, stayed in transportation, but was uh, making his living for a few months there. And then he was arrested um, and then shipped to Chicago for that trial in 1918. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you so much uh, for, for picking that, that piece there too, especially uh, like I told you uh, before we uh, hit, hit, uh, you know, start for this interview uh, that I'm, that I'm also writing about Norfolk. And so this is, uh, you know, trying to think about you know what i would want to include in like a future like chesapeake bay history uh or african-american history class you know uh something i would uh, want to do so that would be actually something i would actually include um to kind of think about the importance of um you know unionism in in the early 20th century and the also the the importance of of um 
radicalism, right? And, and, and also suppression as well. Um, to also think about now, because, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, talk about the connections between, you know, the, uh, the police state and, and, you know, enslavement and all that good stuff, uh, all bad stuff, you know, bad stuff, not good stuff, of course, you know, but, um, but yeah, so I, I definitely think that uh, the piece that you just brought up is is great for that. And also, um, as we transition to the the final part of the interview here, um, as we mentioned, as we talked about before, the structure of this book, like I said, is much different than much uh, than than really most of the other books that I've interviewed authors about over the past four years. Um, but now that the book is out, right, and you said it's double the length, if I if I remember correctly, what do you think that the ben- the the biggest benefit of this structure actually is? Um, because, like I said, I think I actually really enjoyed it um, in terms of having the documents, you know, being effectively many of the documents being able to sit within the structure of the biographical piece you know so so i'm interested to know as the author what you see as some of the biggest benefits and also additionally maybe this could be a way for teachers and and other folks uh to be able to uh get this kind of information too so i'm very interested to know your answers to a few of those uh questions a few points yeah so very sort of intentionally i want this book to be um seen uh, as a way, well, I want this book to sort of help uplift the memory of Ben Fletcher, right? Um, because I believe he's really important. I actually often compare him to Fred Hampton, right? Um, who in recent years has become much better known. Um, and I'm talking from Chicago, right? Um, a young black man uh, who grew up in an industrial city, who became a socialist and a revolutionary, who is considered to be a brilliant speaker and organizer, um, and therefore was basically taken out by the government, right, um, because of the threat that he posed. Um, you know, for for Ben Fletcher, I tried to turn that negative that we don't know much about, actually, him into a positive, right, um, by making the reader into a historian. Um, and so the first part of the book is maybe 70 pages, and it's essentially a biography of Fletcher, but also the story of the union that he helped lead because I um, mean, he's important because of not just who he was, but because of what he did and who he was with. Right. Like, um, um, but the bulk of the book, both the first and the second editions is um, a series of documents, nearly everything that he wrote um, or was interviewed about um, or was written about or how he was remembered after he passed away. Um, and um, and I provide brief introductions to contextualize. Um, some of these documents really stand alone and you can interpret them easily um, without any foreknowledge. But actually, there's a bunch of the documents that benefit, I think, from having, say, two to five sentences of introductory explanation. Right? Um, by reading sources for oneself, one can draw one's own conclusions. That's, of course, what we as trained historians know. Right. Um, that's, however, not something that a lot of non-professional historians, students or professors or whomever, do know, right? Um, that you could actually read original sources from the early 20th century or mid-20th century. Um, and therefore, um, you get a taste of what the, the historian is detective um, that is very much central to the life of a historian, um, but is somewhat invisible from the finished product of most of our work, yeah? Um, and so... 
Um, I appreciate that you like that. I, I, I've heard from actually many people, most of whom are non-academics. This book is largely read by non-academics. Um, it's really sort of, it's not published by a scholarly press. Um, it's not peer reviewed, right? Like, um, nor was it ever imagined in that way, right? Like it's published by a sort of an activist press, right? Like, um, and a lot of the people, the people who are reading it from what I gather, right? Are basically teens and 20 somethings and 30 somethings who identify as on the left, um, uh, both black people and, and non-black people, right? Like, um, I would love it if this book was used in, in history classes as a primary source reader. Um, I know it's been used a couple times in classes, including one you would appreciate um, in Williamsburg, Virginia, right? Like uh, um, at the College of William and Mary this semester, love it. right? Like, um, but um, that has real benefits, right? Like um, it does distinguish it in some way or in that way from many other books of history um, because most aren't organized in that way. Um, the historian uses the sources and then writes a narrative, right? Um, instead, in this book, um, the reader reads the original source material, some of which, you know, might not be that interesting, but a lot of which is. And of course, you also can just sort of stop and go as you wish, right? Because it's essentially 100 short chapters, right? Like, uh, and that might also be nice for those of us who pick up books and put them down at their bedside. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. And uh, I think it's important to, like you said, uh, to have, you know, a, a living, breathing document that allows for uh, integration into um, classrooms that is a lot easier than just a regular, like, let's just say you would have been able to extend the biography to 100 and that live as the only piece. I, I think that would still be valuable, but I think having you know, like you said, effectively a hundred uh, short chapters in there that are the primary sources that you can then kind of pick up and kind of place them on the board to have students. And also, I think it's important, too, when you kind of think about like a methods course, too, right, where when we're trying to talk from whether from undergraduate students on to to upper level grad I think it's always important, um, and I'm I'm thinking about this now in terms of uh, being in, in some of the archives I'm doing work for my dissertation about, sometimes you're separated from stuff for a little while in terms of like your your detective, your detective eye, right? And so I think it, you know, in terms of even my pedagogy, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, where I could see the use of a book like this, where if I'm trying to have students learn how to write short vignettes about why is this book important? Not, not the book, but actually why, uh, ultimately what is the particular, uh, document trying to say, right? What are we learning? And, a, and a way to unpack because effectively that's what you have to do with any archival document that you're effectively going to use in some of your writing. And so, so yeah, you know, you're, you're getting my, you're getting my things going too, as I got to think about these things as I move towards the dissertation and job application shit in the next uh, year and a half or two years or so, however long the same is going to be. Um, so, so I really appreciate you for that um, on this Saturday now afternoon. Um, and so I have a, I have a few more questions for you before we head out. And uh, so we're transitioning out of the book and to try to think more about you as a scholar here. 
Um, so, so, so I'm interested to know what excites you most about the work you do as a writer, scholar, and professor. Well, you know, I'm not religious, but I do feel like I can say I'm blessed to be a history professor. Um, you know, I am paid um, well, actually, um, to read, to think, to write, to teach. Of course, there are some crappy parts of my job. No one wants to grade, right? Um, but, uh, you know, uh, right. I, I, I am so uh, sort of, uh, that is, all of it's so good. I'm inspired by Howard Zinn, um, uh, author most famously of uh, People's History of the United States. Um, he, he said, and there's a documentary film about him, you know, which says you can't be neutral on a moving train, right? Like, uh, so... This notion of objectivity in history, I believe, has long been proven dead. But a lot of people actually hold on to that, including non-historians, um, right? Like, uh, but uh, you're honest with sources. That's why I present them to the readers in this book, right? One can interpret them for themselves. But I also have the right to interpret them, right? Um, and that means that I can sort of help shape them in ways that I think are accurate, but also sort of fit my vision of my society and world. Um, in order to make it better, right? Like, uh, as I say many times, right? Like, I care about the past because I care about the present, right? Um, I want to know mm-hmm. what's wrong and why. Um, everyone knows the, the, the present system is messed up, even those who actually draw conclusions very different from them myself, right? Like, um, but uh, to understand why things are the way they are, we have to look backwards, right? But we do that because we want the, the looking forwards to be better, right? Like, or at least I do. And so... Um, does that make me sort of a, a threat to um, young people? I doubt it, right? Like they all can sort of think for themselves. And I've never met anyone who can say what I say in the way I say it among my students. They don't think what I think, even after they take my classes, right? Like, um, but like, uh, you know, I, I, for me, that's very important. So that excites me, the, the, the opportunity to actually maybe in some small way um, contribute to making the, the country and world better. Um, I'm also shaped by the folk singer, and Wobbly Utah Phillips, who passed away maybe 15 years ago, um, that we're taught the history of the ruling class, right? Like, I mean, when we grow up, we're not actually taught our history. We're taught someone else's history. Those um, white men and to a lesser extent, white women who have ruled our country, right? Um, uh, you know, and so I write to sort of unearth and basically tell the story of us as opposed to the story of them. It's unfortunate that so many of us um, that's not unique to America either, right? That's generally the way all mm-hmm. societies are organized, right? Like, um, but I mean, I was talking to a Nigerian friend of mine uh, who um, was telling me how he had to read English literature. He didn't read Nigerian literature, right? When he was in high school, he had to read English literature. Why? Because the British colonized Nigeria. And Nigeria still actually, um, you know, hasn't entirely freed itself, you might say, um, from its imperial heritage, right? Like, um, in all sorts of ways, right? Like, um, I also sort of love what I do, not just as a, as he said, a writer, scholar, and professor, which are all sort of words that I appreciate and, um, I'm impressed by, even if not everyone is, um, as a historian, right? And so the root of history is story. Um, I love Mm -hmm. stories. I love hearing stories. I love telling stories. We all love stories, right? Actually, I hate it when people say, oh, I don't like history or I'm not good at history, right? Like students some often say that. Uh, and I'm always like, you love stories, right? Right? It's just uh, trying to figure out how those stories and which stories and um, the ways to tell those stories. Um, uh, I work at a 
Western Illinois University. I'm proud to do so. It's a, I wouldn't call it a working class institution. Americans don't even use that term, right, to describe themselves, even though most of my students might be really effectively working or lower middle class, which is a more typical term used in our um, con- culture, right? Like, um, I say, like, you know, people who are given every opportunity and sort of go to f- fancier, maybe sort of more in, uh, better endowed, maybe better universities, they don't need my help as much, right? Like, uh, um, they were born on second or third base, right? Like, uh, um, I work at a place that's not like that, right? Like, um, and so for me, another reason that excites me uh, about the work I do, right, as a professor is that I get to work with students who I think could use my help. They don't all necessarily think that they need my help, <laughs> you know, but, but I think that I could help them, uh, you know, writing, which is another part of my job and many people's jobs, allows one to reach a different and larger audience potentially, um, you know, but the truth is that very few people even, uh, you know, read academic history, right? I mean, that you could work 10 years on something and then 14 people read it. It's kind of depressing, yeah. right? Like, um, and so that is why actually about 15 years ago, I started to write op-eds or try to sometimes. Um, that's one of the things I really love about Black Perspectives, right? The, the, the website mm-hmm. and blog of the African-American Intellectual History Society, because that's reaching a much larger audience. Obviously, this podcast and others like it do something similar in a different media. Uh, medium. Um, But uh, that's also why I created and co-direct a public history and art project, the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. It's all part of me, right? Uh, But I think, uh, although most historians and professors don't do this sort of stuff, they could potentially, although it takes time and effort. um, But for me, it's so important because uh, it's, the goal is the same. It's just like reaching different people, but how do we reach more people? Because the truth is we probably all would like more people than less people to sort of hear us literally and figuratively. Um, And so um, the writing, the speaking, this public art project, our goal is ultimately to um, have 38 artistic markers created for all 38 people killed and have them installed in the streets of Chicago at the locations each person was killed. That's based on an ongoing public art project in, in based in Berlin, Germany, um, called Stoppersteine, which installs small brass plaques in sidewalks outside of the last known residences of Holocaust victims. Um, mm. uh, so that's a public art project. You could call it public history too. I think that's correct, but art as the primary means of achieving, uh, right. sort of uplifting that history, right? Like even historical subjects that we don't want right? Like to sort of learn about, or at least some of us don't want, right? Like uh, going back to an earlier question about why we don't know Ben Fletcher's life. So all those things excite me, right? Uh, I've been in this game for 30 years. Actually, I guess I started grad school at 22. I'm 52, right? Like, um, and so I love it, right? Like, I mean, I appreciate how hard it is to get a job. Uh, it's utterly depressing, right? Like, um, but, you know, for me, I'm fortunate, like I said, that I do and uh, so that excites me, right? Really sort of studying history continues to excite me, even though I've been doing it for decades and I know I'm not alone. I know so many of us still feel that we're animated by um, the actual, what we study, right? Like uh, the past, how could you not be interested in <laughs> the history of the world, right? Like, uh, you know, like uh, what's more interesting? Truth is stranger than fiction. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's endlessly fascinating. Beautiful. And in terms of fascinating... I am 
utterly fascinated with writing and working spaces. As you see behind me, what you see is not mine. It is the person who owns this uh, bed and breakfast I've been staying at. And so, um, but, but, but I love, you know, it's been interesting on Twitter seeing like the, the room Raiders thing, which is, you know, almost seems like a play on words of like the actual, like, you know, reality. I, I don't know if it's a reality television show, but the television show from like 20 years ago. But, um, I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, r- the spaces that, you know, help us to create the, the work effectively that we do. And so, uh, getting a little imaginative here on New Books and African American Studies. If you had all the money you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, where would it be? What would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? You're just talking about art before. And also, as a little prelude to the final question, what is also playing in the background? Paint the picture for the people. Peter. Well, I appreciate the question and uh, the passion um, and as well as the sort of your background, um, as you can see, but others can't. Um, you're sitting at a <laughs> blank wall, right, like uh, in my girlfriend's bedroom. Uh, so, you know, to be honest, I've never had a dedicated writing and workspace, which is sort of weird, but I've come to believe that that says something about me. My partner, by contrast, actually, her, her sort of office space is her temple, um, uh, you know, I have a laptop and I will travel. Um, of course, my ideal would be one with tons of books, essentially everything I needed, right? Like, a, and a great <laughs> sound system as well as having a great view. Um, instead, I'm going to sort of hijack this question and tell you of my, the favorite place that I've written instead of the imagined Let's favorite place. Let's go there. Let's go right? there. Like, so um, in 2015-16, the academic year, um, I was uh, on sabbatical, as was my partner, who's a brilliant academic um, who works on Middle East politics. And so we were able to take sabbatical together, even though we work at different schools. And um, it was my second and her first. Um, and so uh, we spent three months in the Middle East, and then we spent six weeks in South Africa together. I spent, um, you know, she was working on a book interviewing Syrian who were part of the revolution, now failed, but then very much alive. And I got to meet all these Syrian revolutionaries in Istanbul who were living in exile, right? Um and uh, because we were living in Istanbul, I had such an incredible experiences, right? Like um, Istanbul, which is, was the capital city of two empires, right? Um, the Byzantine mm-hmm. and the Ottoman, and continues to be a sort of an important global city, right? Like, uh, and so we were able to sublet a, an apartment of a friend of a friend. And so we were living in, an, there are many old parts of the city of Istanbul, um, but very close to Gezi Park, um, uh, which was uh, sort of the site of protests in 2014 and um, a central part of the city, Taksim Square. And, um, and uh, Istanbul is the only city on t- two continents, right? Like um, European and Asian sides. And so we were living on the European side, but um, we, are, we had these uh, beautiful apartment in this very cool neighborhood um, with floor to ceiling windows that uh, look southward across the Bosporus, which is this natural waterway, a strait, very narrow, that separates Europe and Asia at that point. Um, and uh, so I was looking towards Asia, if you will, but literally, right? Um, and the Bosporus is an important waterway, right? I'm a maritime historian as well as being a labor historian and a historian of black experiences, et cetera, right? Like, uh, and so I was watching 
for several months as I was writing the first few chapters of my last book, Dockworker Power, while ships were passing within my sight for hours at a time, and not endlessly, but regularly. And there's also many watercraft that ferry back and forth across the Bosporus, right? Like, uh, and so for me, um, writing my book about dock workers in the San Francisco Bay Area and Durban, South Africa, while um, watching basically ships pass through this legendary, um, historic, and sort of heavily trafficked global waterway, um, the Bosporus, um, that was really lovely. Um, and then when I was tired of writing, I could go outside and walk a city that's 2,000 years old that has all sorts of historic things, but also has great coffee. <laughs> you know, I was... Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> I was very, very lucky. She also, also had a record player, now that I think about it, because we're talking about the sound, and um, liked some Western music. Um, and so I could listen to records, right? Because she actually had a record player. Um, I could collect records there. I could buy records and then just play them on her home stereo. Um, and yeah, so I was living the life. Um, in the winter of 2015-16 in Istanbul. Sadly, it was the beginning of the end of democracy in Turkey, as we now know. It was actually literally in that same moment while we were there that um, the current leader, Erdogan, who was the leader then, was starting to roll back, basically, the democracy that Turkey had been. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's sort of also sort of life's full of contradictions. Wendy and I had a wonderful experience while we were living in Istanbul. But in retrospect, that was actually, like I said, the beginning of a decline in freedom for the tens of millions of Turkish people. Um, that, and that's still the case, actually. Turkey continues to sort of suffer, um, in my opinion, um, from an authoritarian leader. <laughs> but meanwhile, yeah. I was like writing my book about um, radical dock workers, right, uh, <laughs> in two other continents, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, while I was uh, um, watching ships pass the Bosphorus. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, the contradictions are right. Definitely. And it makes you just think about like what it means to be in a particular place literally as upheaval, um, specifically in a place that you're not from, you know, is just, you know, remarkable. And I'm sure it's something that's uh, been a point of conversation uh, with with, uh, you and your partner about like, you know, what that, you know, experience was, especially now, I guess, about uh, six, seven years um, afterwards, too. and, 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 you know, you were talking about South Africa before and uh, from from your first book. And, and I listened to your interview uh, with my my good friend, uh, the newly minted doctor, Amanda Joyce Hall. So shout out to you, my fellow New Books and African-American Studies co-host. Um, happy for you. Um, so I actually used to play rugby. And so, um, you know, I. Let me say, I what was it was that film Invictus or whatever it was, uh, you know. And so, I just remember um, always watching some of the 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 test matches between you know South Africa and you know whether it's the All Blacks. Which I'm not gonna lie, whenever when I first heard All Blacks, I was like, hold on, what? What the hell y'all mean All Blacks? Y'all in New Zealand, dog? You know, I know there's you know racialism and, and shit and in, in, you know down in uh new zealand but i'm like hold on all blacks but then you know i quickly understood you know what they meant but it just reminded me of just also um you know i know we're talking about maritime history and such but also the the interesting way that like sports and sports history um is also like somewhere around the conversation too in terms of 
you know, the, the, um, rugby world cup and such like that. And, um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I haven't played rugby in a minute, but you know, though, those a few years that I did, it really honestly expanded my geographic, um, understanding of the world, um, centered and rooted literally in sport because even when you know i was no major player but i I was able to travel a bit um uh, here in the states and got to meet you know fijians and samoans and you know folks from from the pacific islands and shit and thinking like damn like the opportunities that a world sport like rugby provides even for people who are not the 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 top top tier in their nation, but they can come over here where we're still nascent and we just got smacked like a hundred and six to nothing or so. I think in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, the, the match was it, it was it was a bloodletting. Um, you know, as an interjection, if I may, like so um for people who are interested in the politics of sport and rugby in particular, um there was actually a seven part documentary series called What's the Word from Johannesburg, created by an American woman. Um, uh, each of the films stands alone, but they were actually created as a group. But there's one called Fair Play. That's one of the episodes. And it's a history of um, the global uh, struggle against apartheid in sport. And it focuses on Mm -hmm. rugby largely. Um, And there's sort of multiple chapters, if you will, in the film. But there's like England, Australia, and New Zealand, right, as three other really British, right, um, countries um, right. that played rugby, right? Um, and then the protests that emerged, this is in the early 70s into the late 70s, right? Like um, against the traveling South African rugby team, which was all white. And even today, mm-hmm. rugby is considered very white, soccer, much more black in South Africa, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, so that a lot of black South Africans simply didn't pay attention to rugby because um, it was um, coded white, but also you couldn't play with multiracial teams, Right, like um, whereas now the, the national sport among South Africans is soccer, even though mm-hmm. the South African soccer team isn't particularly good um, on the world scene. Right, like uh, but Fair Play is a wonderful film with amazing footage, especially from Australia, New Zealand, where um, Aboriginal Australians and then Maori um, also sort of in, um, engage in, but are somewhat conflicted by, like as we still have these same conversations, should sport be a political arena or not? Um, those, all those important matters, but uh, fair play is a, what you will love, but maybe also some of your listeners will love. Uh, also, I've never seen a better political film about sport um, than, not that I'm an expert on that subject, but like um, it's, it's lovely. And, but it's also sort of off the radar of a lot of people. Um, no, definitely. I, and I appreciate you for that because you know, like I said before, like the the racialization and, and also the nature of blackness in the Pacific Islands, too. Right. Looking at um, the work of, uh, uh, you know, fellow Fuller, Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, FAMU for short, alum, Keto Swan's work um, uh, talks about as well um, with uh, black internationalism and the diaspora. But also just thinking about how, you know imperialism right just thinking about you know just the haka right as its own like i remember uh like it's interesting when you have like a basketball player like steven adams who you know is a new zealand uh i believe born um basketball player here in the states and 
I remember, uh, I think it was in the Olympics, the um, New, Ze- New Zealand national basketball team played the United States. And it seemed like that for the, uh, for the, for the U.S. players might have been the first time that they'd ever in person seen a haka. You could almost tell by the, I guess, the smirks and such. And, and obviously their team is not great, you know, the New Zealand team, but it's also one where the 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 haka in the Pacific Islands is it's it's a important cultural uh, symbol, but that's also one that is not exclusively bound to indigenous people. Clearly seen by how some of the leaders of the haka can also be white. Uh, uh, if I, I I might I might have gotten that wrong, but I I'm sure I've seen obviously where the white players are engaged in the haka. Maybe not leading it, but they're definitely a part of um, of um. Of the, of the proceedings man look we we talk about we <laughs> we talk about rugby and world sport we we're, we're this is an all hands on deck uh a pun intended uh a podcast here so um the the last one here but before we get too long in the tooth here uh because like you said before in the, in our, co- our previous conversation we could talk about this for like 10 hours uh and so last question before we head out peter um, because I rarely work long stretches without music playing for you. I wonder if you could curate a playlist based on your book, Ben Fletcher, A Life and Times of a, of a Black Wobbly, what 10 songs or however many songs you choose will go in said playlist? Well, uh, I'm with you, of course. I love music. Music drives me, it inspires me, it relaxes me. This question is also high stakes, and so I, I actually um, <laughs> thought about it because, um, fortunately, you share your questions in advance. Um, so uh, before I answer that, let me say that after this edition came out, and this will be the second, but it's also no doubt the final edition of this book, um, I found another couple documents, one of which from a small newspaper or obscure newspaper in Camden, which is just across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. Um, and Fletcher had lived in Camden earlier in his life, a working class family that moved around and rented various places, Um, that in 1912, there's a short story, like a short article in a small newspaper, four sentences, five sentences, about Fletcher being part of a musical group called The Corporation, right? Um, I had no idea that Fletcher was musical, although I'm not surprised given his background as a black person, um, but also that he was widely reputed to be a great speaker. Um, There's no mention of if he played an instrument, if he was a singer. It's like this incredibly tantalizing yet unsatisfying yet exciting little article, right? Um, so that is what it is. Fletcher is a Philly guy, born and raised, and a black one at that. And so that's really where I focused my sort of te- my playlist, as you say. So John Coltrane um, mm-hmm. wasn't born in Philadelphia, but he actually grew up in Philadelphia. It's where he got his first sax in alto. It was where he saw Charlie Parker play in 1945 that basically um, uh, changed Coltrane's life. Um, and coincidentally, Coltrane was the first jazz artist that I got appreciation for, thanks to a good friend of mine in college named Andrew. Um, so if this is my 10 songs, like we're starting with Train, and um, literally the first album that I listened to his, uh, to Coltrane's, was Giant Steps from 1960. And the opening track is Countdown, which leads with mm. an insane drum solo by um, I guess it's uh, Elvin Jones. Um, and so uh, and so. anyway, Coltrane, Giant Steps, right? Number one, um, 
great because uh, you gotta organize the playlist right um, <laughs> uh, it's not just 10 songs it's the order matters right um you know proceeding from that uh, more philly right uh, my fave philly soul band is sort of probably the best well-known one the ojs um and mm-hmm. so love train is their most well-known song but there's a reason for that it's an amazing song and so uh, let's climb aboard um you know, song three, maybe, uh, well, Philly has some good blue-eyed soul, right? Holland Oates is a Philly band, um, mm-hmm. and their early classic, She's Gone, is it's maybe my favorite Holland Oates song. I actually grew up, I'm a child of the 80s, and I used to like their 80s music, but now I can't stand any of that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the 70s is such a great era for 1970s for American music and world music um, in keeping with the theme sort of, you know, maybe jumping from OJ's to Detroit. I'll just pick Stevie wonder one song you got to throw in. Um, so living for the city seems like an appropriate song for mm-hmm. this subject, maybe off intervisions um, back to Philly. Well, again, sort of honoring Ben Fletcher. Um, my favorite hip hop group from Philadelphia is The Roots, actually. Um, there it is. Um, and uh, although I don't often know track names on many hip hop um, albums, right off their Things Fall Apart album, right? Like uh, their song, You Got Me. Which yes. also includes yes. Erica Badu and Zap Mama, both of whom I've seen. I've never seen The Roots, but I hope to. Um, I know they still perform sometimes. Um, sticking with Philly. Patti LaBelle, right? Um, Mark Anthony Neal mm-hmm. wrote an amazing story about Patti LaBelle in the New York Times Magazine last year. Um, yes. Uh, but uh, Lady Marmalade, um, one of her sort of funky um, hits. You often don't know even the name of the song, um, but you've all heard the song Lady Marmalade before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the IWW also was actually, well, Tom Morello, the guitarist from Rage Against the Machine, um, yep. actually wrote a New York Times op-ed recently in which he called the IWW. He's a member of the IWW. Um, and also one of his parents was um, African-American. Um, Morello uh, called the IWW the first singing union, um, uh, which is very much true. Folk singer and wobbly Utah Phillips collaborated with a woman who's still playing music named Annie DeFranco, an album called Fellow Workers, which has all these old uh, covers of old wobbly songs, but also about a spoken word. Um, and one of the songs on that is called Pie in the Sky, written by Wobbly's most famous singer named Joe Hill. Um, and uh, um, the, the, the stanza goes in part, it's basically criticizing preachers and criticizing religion, right? Like saying, you know, religion, um, don't believe your ministers. They're telling you most religion institutions were anti-union. Um, you'll get pie in the sky when you die, but that's a lie, right? Um, Instead, the Wobblies are saying, we want heaven on earth, right? Um, Liberation Mm -hmm. theology sort of thing, right? Like, and so um, Joe Hill's song, um, The Preacher and the Slave is sort of redone as pie in the sky, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, uh, Fletcher would have known Joe Hill. There's actually a historian named Franklin Rosemont, a poet who's deceased, speculated that Hill, when he traveled through Philadelphia around 1910, would have met Ben Fletcher. And it's very possible he did, although it's possible he didn't. I can't say for sure. Right. Um, But keeping in sort of the strain of IWW, but also folk music and sort of refty folk music, um, you know, I still believe that Bob Dylan is the the greatest American songwriter, um, deeply influenced by Woody Guthrie. 
and many other political folk singers, um, the only songwriter to receive a Nobel Prize for literature. Um, too many songs to <laughs> too many songs to pick from Dylan's. Um, but since I know you go to Rutgers um, in New Jersey, next door to Philly, um, mm-hmm. his song "Hurricane" right um, is of course a New Jersey song about Reuben Carter, the black boxer who was yep. falsely arrested and imprisoned for a murder he did not commit. Um, and you know Dylan's lyrics, right, like her. Um, put in a prison cell, but one time you could have been champion of the world. That sort of in the in the in the chorus is such, so powerful. Of course, it later was made into a movie starring Denzel Washington. But like, right. um, it was uh, Dylan's song "Hurricane" from 1976 is amazing. Um, I'm in Chicago, and so I do have to give you one Chicago song, right? Like, um, in this really heavy set list, um, I spend about half my life here, and I'm currently only a few blocks away from. Lakeshore Drive, recently mm-hmm. renamed by the city council, Dusabo Lakeshore Drive, after the first non-native resident of what became the city of Chicago, the Haitian man, Jean Point Dusabo. Um, so Jamila Woods, who's this amazing mm. young-ish singer and artist, um, has a song called LSD, which is about Lakeshore Drive, right? Um uh, and with uh, Chance the Rapper, my favorite actual Chicago rapper is Chance. Um, so LSD is uh, you get two for one, right? You get Jamila, but you also get Chance. right? Like, um, And then I was thinking, well, I was just texting with a good friend of mine. Um, brand new release of John Coltrane's The Love Supreme, right? Like there's the, the studio mm-hmm. version. There's one live recording, but suddenly a second live recording emerged and was just released um, within a few weeks ago from Seattle in 1965. Wow. Um, it's twice as long as the studio version. It has extra artists on board instead of just his quartet, right? It also has like Pharaoh Sanders playing. Um, I actually saw Pharaoh Sanders, now that I think about it, in Philadelphia at the... Um, african-american history museum right um mm-hmm. near chinatown right like her in the mid 90s when i was doing dissertation wow. research um yeah so like i saw pharaoh play once um but the last song on love supreme is song the last movement is called psalm right um and so that seems like an appropriate way to close a set list Right. Uh, is, uh, but we start and end with Coltrane. You can't really go wrong <laughs> you know? at all. Yeah. So, Not at all. So there it is. Good deal. So Peter Cole, Peter Cole, author of Ben Fletcher, A Life in Times of a Black Wobbly. Thank you so much for, you know, for for bringing us together. And, you know, thank you for reaching out again. This was an incredible opportunity um a great book um as well so congratulations to you again on this amazing feat and um we'll definitely uh, make sure that folks go out and get this book um and uh you know twitter facebook you know the whole the whole area you know that we send things these things out to um you know the interviews have been going really well so they're reaching downloads are reaching tens of thousands so uh, so, so, so somebody going to hear this, somebody going to hear this. Um, and so it's been an honor and a pleasure to, to chat with you today on a beautiful Saturday. So I hope that you enjoy it as we, for you cross into the noontime hour and, um, for you listeners, thank y'all so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And, uh, you know, we got to know how we doing. 
You know, we, we got to be able to get out and and show, you know, that y'all are enjoying it. And uh, and hey, even if even if you don't let us know, because how else are we going to get better? Right. And so, y'all, my name is Adam Xavier McNeil, the co-host of the channel New Books in African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network for, I believe now, the 92nd time over and mm-hmm.